This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast, a podcast that explores afterlife-related media such as All Slugs Go to Heaven, Ding Dong, You Are Dead, and The Fast and Furious Part 9, Jason Statham Goes to Hell. Those are just consistently bad jokes. I don't know if I should include that. (laughs) Today, everything is fine. Because we're covering the TV show The Good Place, running four seasons from 2016 to the present, created by Michael Schur. I'm Mark Lintonmeyer, having successfully treated my trolley problem with a few applications of a steroid cream. I'm Erica Spires, constantly disproving John Locke's theory of personal identity through my goldfish-like memory. And I'm Brian Hurt, and I always knew that Dwight Schrute's Cousin Moe's would make one of the smartest comedies in TV history. Dwight himself said it, the world shines on Moe's, and sure enough. Wait, is sure Moe's? Uh-huh. I didn't know that. Well, we learned something. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> See you next time. So we had a an episode a while ago on Friends to talk about what sitcoms were as a representative example, as a high point, as a lauded thing. So this seemed a good complement to that. You know, it's similar in certain ways. You have likable people that you want to hang around, but this was much more plot-driven. I don't know. We can get into the comparison and contrast, but this obviously is a landmark show, and it, it was just wrapping up here. So it seemed fitting for us to circle back to the sitcom and. See if it is, as was in the days when we were growing up, just rotten your brain. Is This is just the new version of Welcome Back, Cotter, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know. Is it, Brian? It is not. <laughs> All right, let's set our rules, as always, with spoilers. How much of this are we spoiling? Oh, I love it. I think we have to. If we're going to talk about the final episode. If we're going to talk about anything beyond season one. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Beyond all the episodes besides the last episode of season one, then yes, I suppose that's true. Brian, why don't you give us a little summary of what this show is for people who haven't watched it, and then after that point, we're going to spoil everything. Okay, that sounds good. So starting off, we are in the good place. We have four characters who have their lives on Earth have ended, and they have reached, uh, they don't call it heaven, it's called the good place, and we are treated to a philosophy teacher, a socialite, a Buddhist monk, and a woman who I will spoil the first episode is actually a dirtbag from Arizona, played by Kristen Bell. And this show follows their trials and tribulations as they go through the good place and later on the medium place, the bad place, and other places led along by their guide from the afterward Michael, played by Ted Danson, who we'll all know from Cheers. So go watch all... 52 episodes, and then listen to this podcast, because the show is awesome. This is nothing like a sitcom, except that it's really funny. And not always consistently funny, but sometimes very funny and sometimes just very smart and humorous. But yeah, these are people we like, except when we don't. And one of the things we talked about with our friends podcast is one of the general rules of sitcoms is the similarity from one episode to the next, that we know exactly what we're going to get, and we get it. And honestly, not that much changes from one episode to the next. I think even Family Guy or The Simpsons, I forget which, goofed on it, just pointing out that it might have been a Simpsons episode as well. Well, nothing has changed at the end. And of course, like Springfield's on fire or something. There's some throwaway joke about that. I felt so off balance watching The Good Place and and in a good way that I, I really wasn't quite sure where things were going to end up from one episode to the next, from one season to the next. And it was, I just thought, a really great surprise watching this show 
uh, having that lack of equilibrium as they went through it. I guess we're showing our colors on how much we liked or didn't like this show. I've already shown mine. Eric, I want to hear your initial reaction. Were you too distracted by your identification with uh, Kristen Bell? (laughs) One of the greatest compliments I've ever had in my life was when my boss came up to me and said, I reminded him of Kristen Bell, which I will take any day of the week. Listen, this show, what attracted me to watching this show was that Kristen Bell was on it. But what kept me watching this show was the ensemble cast and the interesting, like you said, Brian, like not knowing where it was going to go. I recommended this show over the years to so many people. I started watching it at the beginning and I told people initially, it's really funny. You got to watch it. Ted Danson. Great. And then at the twist of season one, I just finally told people like, you have to watch this show because it gets even better. And I can't tell you how without giving it all away. There aren't a lot of TV shows that successfully do this. And and I feel like maybe more of them will now because they'll see how successful it is to continue a series with the same or very similar cast and still be able to turn it upside down with twists that keep you intrigued, but still sincere and maintain the core of what the show is. You know, I'm trying to think of other shows that do that or that have done that in the past. Maybe Westworld in a way, in a very different way, right? We've only had two seasons, but season two is very different than season one, and season three looks like it's going to be completely different than the previous two seasons. So, you know, I would hope they're doing something like that, but I just think what a smart way to do that. And also, The Good Place had the good sense to stop us before we got tired of it. So the only comedy I can think of that does these radical relocations between season to seasons is Weeds, which is not even uniformly a comedy. But I think, you know, we're just taking advantage of the fact of serialized television in a way that the sitcom was created to be something back in the day when you could tune into any one episode. I think all shows were, you know, so this is really just, it's surprising that comedies had taken as long to catch up with other types of formats in taking advantage of the fact that everybody's going to watch from the beginning. It's very unlikely you're just going to tune into the middle of season three and expect to know what's going on in the way that you would with Star Trek or Chips or (laughs) Remington Steel or Taxi or whatever. In doing some reading about this, I thought, well, wouldn't it be fun to kind of like get a negative perspective on The Good Place because it seems like so many people like it. So I was like, what about like Christian outlets? I wonder what Christian outlets have to say about the morality and like if they would recommend the show or not. And I read like two or three different Christian reviews and they really liked it. (laughs) Like they saw the value in it. They saw the humor in it, even if they didn't agree with how it got there. They did have a point of like, you know, ultimately... You know, it misses the point that eternal salvation is not about good works. It's about accepting the grace of Jesus Christ or whatever. But like that was like a small paragraph at the end. And the rest of it, they just seemed to actually kind of agree with a lot of the morality behind it and just appreciative that there was something on television that helped people be better. To your question about whether other shows do this, I know we have spoken before about the Danny McBride series, Vice Principles and The Righteous Gemstones. And I think this idea of having a a really short series where you can take a lot of quick turns and change your rules because you're not going to be doing it for very long. And then they end up getting the cast again together for a a totally new series, but it's a lot of the same people. Right. Like an anthology, right? More of an anthology type series. Not even, 
but feels like it. Like it almost feels like a theater rep company. Right. And I guess I haven't really watched much of it, but my understanding is American Horror Story does some of the same thing, right? It's some of the same actors from season to season, but they just tell a new story with some of the same actors, but they're all playing different characters. Why are we talking about this, Mark? As someone who listens to a philosophy podcast, I mean, I listen to easily one episode out of a hundred, so I know a lot about this stuff, but I'm wondering if you have any thoughts as a philosopher. Yeah, so it's similar to my thoughts on TED Talks or these, there are these other things that people do to educate themselves that you might think if this is the only thing you did, then it would just not be enough. <laughs> then you're just dabbling. You're maybe just making things worse for yourself. And I'm sure people think that about my show too. But of course, everybody's got a slightly different take on what they think is important. What is a level of competence that is enough? And so in terms of actually learning philosophical ideas, this is not even philosophy 101. This is like barely scraping the surface of you probably come away with a handful of terms that maybe you knew. I guess this is a question for you guys. Like, did you feel like you know what, say, Kant's moral theory or utilitarianism? Or or did you know anything that you didn't already know? It seems like insofar as these were already in common parlance and anybody that's gone to college, you know, maybe knows what Sartre's no exit was about or, you know, the as opposed to something fundamentally new here. It seems like there were things introduced on this show that were new to me, Tim Scanlon being one that was mentioned several times, but I didn't come away from the show actually knowing anything about those things. (laughs) This seemed to be just, here's a thing you might want to go read about. Well, first a question, Mark. You refer to my show. What would that be? That's the partially examined life. Not this show. This show is not educational. Thanks for letting everyone know about that, Mark. There, It's kind of a irritating platitude, but the idea of knowing what you don't know as the first step towards knowledge. And I think this show did a bit of that, right? It's just long enough, just enough exposure to say, hey, that's something I don't know about, and I can go learn more. Uh, you mentioned the trolley problem when you're introducing yourself, and that was a, an episode of the show that went a little deeper than maybe typically does, but honestly, Cheaty writing on a blackboard about someone and saying, well, Hume was all about this, and then they're on to the next thing. Like, I didn't learn anything about Hume, but now I know there was someone named Hume if I didn't. I mean, I did. And maybe what he was about, and if that's interesting to me, I'll go learn more, but I haven't learned really anything yet. Now, this isn't my domain, so I don't know how much I should be irritated or not by how right or wrong he's getting things. In addition to having minimal exposure, is it totally reductive to the point of not even being correct how some of these things are presented or are they eh, you know close enough for government work that's what Hume's about and yeah this is what Heidegger's about or are they being a little fast and loose I think in the first season especially it was fast and loose to the point of actually wrong but then they got I guess Todd May and Pan Hieronymi are the names of the philosopher consultants that were on the show going forward and I think that's when you had episodes like the trolley problem which came out of not just Michael Schur's interest in philosophy, but consulting with people who have taught these things and, you know, how can we using them as the basis for an episode idea, which just the fact that that is the thing, <laughs> like I'm going to give so many points to this show or any show that even tries anything like this. So I guess this is, I, Erica, this is what you're talking about. The religious papers lauding this show reminds me of, even if they don't think it did a good job or a correct job in terms of the ideology. <laughs> They're trying. <laughs> and that's so rare that even though it has to come with a heavy dose of acknowledgement of the fundamentally anti-intellectual character of American society so that you had to constantly be having the Kristen Bell character called Cheaty 
a nerd for talking about this kind of stuff. That there had to be some, yes, we do, the creators of the show want you to come away thinking about this stuff or wanting to learn more or trying to apply some of these lessons to your actual life. But we have to acknowledge what a nerdy thing this is. Like there's still this fundamental shame about it. Definitely it's a very self-aware show, which is part of, I think, why it works so well. It does it in a really clever way. As far as like the philosophical questions and stuff, yes, I went to a liberal arts school and we were encouraged to study a bit of these things. And I have to say, like most of it I had heard of at least, but what I thought was interesting about this and the fact that it, so there's something I think, of course, I'm a bit biased, but I think there's something really special about theater and television and these visual mediums to tell a story that sticks with us. In one of my philosophy classes in college, we actually watched Groundhog Day. And we went through all the different moral lessons that he goes through in that and compared them to what we were learning in school. And I think that stuck with a lot of people because we had a way to visualize it rather than just reading about it and hoping that it stuck. So I think it did a great job with that because we got to like actually talk about the theories and then see them played out in different ways. So like Doug Forsett, who is the person who is back on Earth, who has imagined the afterlife as it is in the good place. And he's trying to get as many good points as he can, but he's just the most miserable person ever because he's just trying to do good for getting good points. So to see those lessons played out and see if the theories really work when they're taken to the extreme was really fun. Then I kept being like confused too, right? Because like maybe you guys have something to say about this, but I remember one of my professors in school saying, well, you can't have a buffet. Like you can't just pick and choose from these different philosophical ideas. Like you'd have to kind of like stick to one. Like, what are you actually? Are you Nietzschean? Are you follower of Aristotle? But you can't just have like a buffet of like, I want to take this from this, you know, from this philosopher and then something else from this philosopher and like put it together and make it your own plate of philosophy to live by. And I was always like, well, why not? Because none of them are going to be right, right? That's so prescriptive and weird. I mean, that's how our belief systems actually work. And I could see wanting to aspire to that, but it's utter nonsense to think that that might actually be the case. Who is this guy? Let's shame him. Get his name out. I shall not do that. But um... <laughs> I actually think ethics is uniquely in philosophy amenable to a patch it together sort of <laughs> approach. Whereas metaphysics or something like you know, do you believe the world is all ideas or do you believe it's dead material, just atoms in a void? Like, that's a pretty stark choice. And the way to split the difference on that is be like, we can't know any of these things for sure, so let's explore them all. Whereas ethics, it's been a failed experiment to come up with one rule, one way of, you know, that actually captures all of our ethical intuitions. It would be incomplete if you were to study only Kant and not utilitarianism. Like, these things go together, even though they seem to be in stark contrast as theories and they have obvious different effects, but they're kind of playing at different moral intuitions. You can give an evolutionary explanation of, you know, why we might have different springs in our head that are pushing us in different directions because they had different evolutionary purposes initially or something. If you're not beholden to a particular religion that says all ethical thinking has to come from one source, then yes, you would want to study all of them and kind of pick and choose. So is that particular to religion then? If, if we're talking religion, then you pick, you have to pick one? That's a good separate question. <laughs> it depends what you think the function of religion is. Your idea of meta-religion. Is this just something that you're doing to make yourself feel better? In that case, like, yeah, pick and choose. <laughs> 
if we really can't know anything fundamentally, if it's just what I just said about metaphysics, then yeah, it seems like you could play with different things at different times. But if you take the religions as they present themselves seriously, then yeah, you should pick one. That's uh, a very Western notion though. Right. Actually, I say that just after we, some of us saw the Martin Scorsese film Silence, where they're either you're a Buddhist or we're going to torture and kill you. So to say that's so Western is uh, probably glorifying the East in an unjustified way. I have thought of the trolley problem a lot since watching the trolley problem episode. I was trying to think of the different ways, and I've read some different articles about it and the different ways that like how I would choose and what would change that. But I think that's been kind of funny because the trolley problem is something I remember from college, and it does seem like that one episode spurred so much conversation about the trolley problem. I know there's a card game out there, a bit like Cards Against Humanity, one of those party games for dirtbags where you have to do the trolley problem, and they lay out different cards of what's on either side of the trolley and which way it's going, and then you have to like vote on whether someone is morally reprehensible for the choices that they're making. One nice thing about the trolley problem is it was recognized by the the science fiction community. It won the Hugo Award that year for Best Short Performance Dramatic Presentation, which is really great to see this show. Actually, uh, the next season, the episode Janet's won as well for the episode where we were inside Janet's head. So I have nothing but good things to say about how carefully this was put together, how good the performances were. I also recommend maybe not listening to all 52 episodes, but at least to some of the Michael Schur episodes of the official podcast with Mark Evan Jackson, who plays the head devil, interviewing various people involved in the show. And they kind of go through every episode in detail and point out all the Easter eggs and the writing decisions. And that's a little too much for me. Maybe if I'd been listening to it as I was going through, I would have wanted to do that. But getting a glimpse into the writer's room and how this was put together, how deliberately, you know, really makes you appreciate it more. At the same time, did anybody share a kind of fatigue? This is something I wanted to explore here, that by the end, you know, when these last episodes were coming up, I almost didn't want to bother because the twists and turns had so drained the dramatic tension for me that there wasn't any like there was at the end of season one, say like, ooh, what's going to happen next? Ooh, what's going to happen? Like, it was just, this is a bunch of random stuff. I so don't know what's going to happen next or the stakes have gotten too otherworldly, which is ironic to say that there weren't otherworldly from the start, but they've gotten too removed from human experience for me to care. But then I was won back by the actual presentation of the finale and things. I agree with that, Mark. I was not eagerly anticipating in a way of wanting things resolved, but I was looking forward to just enjoying it. This is something I've grown to be really comfortable with and whatever send-off these characters were going to get, I felt really confident I was going to enjoy. So found a little quiet time. It was almost cozy sitting down to watch the end. Maybe it's just the nature of watching a comedy, but there wasn't anything that was making me be like, oh God, what's going to happen next week? I was always enjoying putting the show on every week when I would watch it. But had this been a show that I couldn't have streamed on Hulu after I got rid of network television. I don't know when I would have caught back up with it and how compelled I would have been to do so. Whereas, you know, if you have something that's more of a sci-fi thriller or something like that, then you're like, I got to know what happens. You know, that wasn't the point of this show. Maybe even considering that Shore did a lot of work, I I read that he talked to Damon Lindelof because he had had the, the idea about doing this show after watching The Leftovers. And Lindelof suggested to him 
hey, if you're going to do this, great, but really have an exact idea of where the show's going. Have yourself a map for the whole thing, which I thought was kind of ironic since... He's learned his lesson. Exactly, I guess. Uh, that's how he knew that. Well, sure, made a map. He kind of ma- mapped it all out, and it turns out it spelled the words Jeremy Barramy. It was crazy. <laughs> The fact that he did all of this planning, maybe he did it on purpose in the final season to like let us like sit with it and be ready to let it go. Because that's a bit of what he did with that last episode, right? Or the last couple of episodes. So we finally get to the actual good place. And we see that the only people who have gotten into it, had it's been, what, thousands of years, right? Since anybody has gotten actually into the good place. I believe it was 531 oh, years. Thank you, 531 years. Yes. Since the system was broken beyond repair and nobody else could get in. And so we see that all those people who have been there that long are really, really bored. And certainly I don't think we got really, really bored of the good place, but we got used to it. it you know, it became like a warm blanket. Maybe he kind of did that to like get us ready to let go of it. I'm just trying to think, even with these thrillers, what is the one with Tatiana Manley playing 12 characters? Tatiana Maslany and Orphan Black. Orphan Black. That was one where I was, we were very gripped at it by it until we weren't. That there's just a certain, it ran a little too long, at least for my tastes. We got a little too tired out of the twists and turns. And that's a little, despite the fact that The Good Place was not ultimately that long. And maybe it's just when it says, okay, now take a six month break and you don't get to see the show anymore then things happen and you stop caring and you watch a little later and it doesn't immediately click back. You know, So maybe it would have been a different experience streaming the entire thing. I'd be interested to hear what the people who uh, actually went and watched all four seasons, plus the capper after us warning them at the beginning of this show or some other reason recently, what they thought as opposed to us. I might have binged season one, but then you know after that was going at more or less real time like everybody else. I think this had the potential to be the greatest show that was ever canceled, right? This could have been the comedy version of Firefly if it had just gone one season and then the studio exec said, yeah, we don't get it. We're canceling it. If it had ended after season one, people would have lost their minds. What this show could have been, and I think it didn't quite live up to the tight genius of season one, but it also went so far in new directions that I think we can certainly forgive it for not... Was it season two that ended with all the twists at the train station? I thought those were... Or was that season three? I forget. I just thought it was a little dopey with all the... Season two ends with the burrito, ends with them confronting... I didn't think this was this early in the show, but that they find the Maya Rudolph judge character and that as a prelude to them being cast back on Earth. There was something comfortable about the original Good Place, about the first season, that even with the discovery and the reboots and things that it was a little disconcerting and you kind of wanted in some ways, like just stay there or keep remaking that. Or I just want a, a new version of something familiar. <laughs> like this is, the, this is the kind of demand that pop culture makes within our psyches here. It was a fine line to serve enough of that, but yet disappointed enough of that. I would love to talk a bit about the last episode because last episodes are so difficult to do for any TV show. Most of them are done very poorly. I thought this one was done beautifully. And I have some thoughts about it. So I wanted to open that up for you guys too to say, what did you think of it? Does it match up at all with what you hope the afterlife might be and the meaning of it all? Do either of you have what you think is a really good ending of a comedy? I have some drama shows that I feel like ended really well. And I always point to Breaking Bad as maybe my favorite ending of a TV show. But is there a a comedy that you thought maybe, 
And people point to Newhart sometimes, which was more of a gag than anything else. But you just thought ended really well. I can't think offhand. I mean, the ones that I've reviewed recently, you know, Friends, I thought that when a show plays on the dramatic elements and makes you, to the extent that you care about these characters, you're asking this question makes me think of one that I constantly think of that I just thought was hilariously bad at the time was the show Just Shoot Me, if you remember that show. I remember it. I didn't watch it enough to know how it ended. It ended in the same kind of way that Friends did in everybody being, like, I don't even remember what happened to the episode. I just remember that it was really assuming that you cared about these characters. And I so didn't. Like, it's a show that I watched all the way through, but like, eh, it's pretty funny. It's a pretty good cast. The writing is okay. It's better than a lot of other things. But like, it was, it did not earn enough to like, like the kind of care that this show and that friends I think had in saying goodbye to each character and, and resolve. It only works if there's an audience that actually cherishes these performance, doing these performances and relating to each other. And I just felt that was completely unearned in. <laughs> Just shoot me, even though I'm sure the people working on that show felt that way, you know, and any show, no matter how terrible it is, you probably like, we've just spent five years together, what, you know, or however long. So what about you, Erica? I mean, I'll answer your question that you asked, but I just want to know if you think any show, maybe not looking at The Good Place for a moment, has really, again, comedy has done this really well. I'm having to remind myself because it is difficult to think of that. I think Silicon Valley did all right. I was okay with that. I think it ended when it needed to. I'm glad they didn't do any more. Parks and Rec was a pretty good ending. It was a little weird. Also playing on your love of the characters. and Yeah, exactly. And it did loop back to the very beginning and the whole point of like why the show started. So I thought that was nice that they remembered that thread. But yeah, not a lot. Not a lot. I can't really remember. I feel like most things just kind of end. Good call on Parks and Rec. I was starting to really agree with Mark, this idea of sitcoms getting too sentimental and and playing too much on their serious side in a way that MASH just went crazy with it. And somehow everyone thought they had to do that as a way of ending a sitcom. And to look at what Parks and Rec did, it was respectful, but it still went for comedy in ways that I appreciated. So back to The Good Place, I think what this show had going for it is it was serious in some ways. It did always have a fascination with these mysteries. And so for it to be continuing to do that in its final episode was totally appropriate. And it wasn't maudlin. It was lighthearted in a lot of places. It also went back to its first episode in some ways. Jason somehow becoming a monk at the end, I thought was so clever. I, and I didn't actually see it until it was pointed out to me. And I said, you son of a bitch, <laughs> nicely done. So that's great. That wasn't my favorite episode, but the last ones seldom are. But I appreciated the finale of The Good Place. Is it how you would imagine or hope that the afterlife would be? Pass, Mark. No, you have no opinion on that? Correct. I wonder what Marx is. Sure. Yeah, no, of course, you can do whatever you want for as long as you want and be with the people that you love. I was actually thinking back to uh, Tolkien and the Silmarillion and his introduction of death is the gift to humans. The first people, the elves, they didn't get that. And so they just had to hang around for a long time. You can see what antisocial bastards they eventually become. And so I knew that this was going to be a thing. I guess I wasn't trying to predict what the good place was going to be for real or anything like this. Because by this time, it just, 
again, it had detached itself too much, even from my speculating philosophical mind, (laughs) from my kind of caring enough to use this as my conceptual playground or whatever to what would I have done if I was making this the good place? What, what would I want the good place to be like? But certainly, you know, yes, the fundamental insight of like, if you do anything forever, that that's going to be too much. Like, yeah, these are things that should immediately occur to you in the podcast where on the finale, talking to Michael Schur about, was there a particular philosopher or something that this idea of the afterlife, it's like, no, it's just a common sense thing that occurs to you as soon as you think about what heaven would be. You're really just going to be sitting there motionless playing a harp all the time. Like what? It's a concept that doesn't make sense in the first place if you think about it. And is, I think, a fundamental reason why people should flee from traditional religion if they're actually trying to get you to buy into this thing. What about you, Erica? (laughs) So this episode really hit me. Like, I just feel like I'm going through stuff in my life right now. Yeah, like I'm, I think I'm going through like one of those life transitions where you hit a certain point or maybe a peak of certain sorts and then you're looking out and trying to figure out what's next and is, is this all there is? So I've been reading some Greek mythology and it hit in exactly some of these points. You know, of course, it's stuff that I've thought about before, but it presented it to me in, in a way that was very poignant at this time in my life. In, in a similar w- way that Battlestar Galactica always talked about how the Cylons, ultimately, they wanted the opportunity to end things because that's what made life matter. There was that part of it, is that there has to be some sort of ending. And then when they asked what that was, the good place just very sweetly said, well, we don't know, it's just a sort of peace. Because I also, like... I assume like you guys don't really believe in an afterlife, but what I hope that life is in general, whether it's this life here or what people believe is an afterlife, is that we do ultimately have a chance to try many things, to fail, to succeed, and to get to the point where we're like, yeah, we kind of have done that. Like, all right, peace out. So that was really beautifully done. I laughed so much that like Jason's final goodbye was after he had played the perfect game of Madden. (laughs) You know, and he was just ready to go. He was the simplest of them, but like also in a way, just like so in tune with his emotions in a way that the rest of them weren't because he was so simple. And then I wept like a baby when Chidi's last day was happening. Definitely feel like I could identify with, I think most of us can identify with Eleanor's situation where this person that you love, it's not that they don't love you anymore. They're just kind of like, that's it. They're ready to go. And she had to finally allow him to pass. And I think that all of us can identify with that, if not with somebody, if not with our partners, with a parent and being like, it's okay, you can do this. So his last day, unlike everybody, you know, everybody else had like dialogue. There was no dialogue during the party. There was a party, they're all sipping wine and they just play Spiegel im Spiegel. That piece gets me and I just lost it. It felt like Eastern philosophy, which they ended up, you know, talking about. Which I'm going to stop dropping things from the podcast because people can go listen to the official podcast. But Spiegel im Spiegel by Ervo Pert is the song that Michael Shore listened to continuously for days while writing the finale. So that was not an accident. Whoa. I remember the first time I heard that piece and I was lying on the ground at a, sounds like I was a high college student, but I actually wasn't. I think I was just lying on the ground in somebody's apartment and they played that and I just like drifted off into the most meditative state. For me, maybe that's what I want it to be, you know? It's just a nice, peaceful piece of music that just drifts you off into another world. 
walk back my flippant past from earlier. Truly, the afterlife doesn't resonate with me at all, but I think that what's going on in this episode is a really aspirational way to end the real life, right? If you could get to the end of your life with that sense of fulfillment and peace as you drift back into entropy and and nothingness, that's great. In my youth, I would see older people who seemed to be pretty content with their lives. And as a young pisher, I, I didn't really get that. I had a lot I wanted to do. And as I'm getting older, I'm starting to see why most people who do make it to a, a natural end generally are pretty good with things. So maybe that's just a, a transition. You just can't see through the lens of an old person when you're not there yet. And so as I continue my journey and knock wood, keep making it maybe a couple more decades here, I will maybe achieve that level of peace that I think would be a really good way to go with. I think also by, I mean, not doing, and there was no reason to do any age makeup, but I think a lot of shows end up like, well, Silicon Valley for one, wanted to show something that happened like years later. So they gave some age makeup to some characters and stuff. And it's supposed to give us this idea, right? That these people have been through some stuff and they're older now and wiser, hopefully. Well, the good place, everybody looked exactly the same because they were like frozen in time because time didn't really exist except for in the Jeremy Bear Me sense. So we got the sense that they have been like this, trapped, literally trapped in this state for a long, long time. And they're enjoying it, but somehow it resonated more that they would want to leave it all behind. That's one of the things, the passage of time that I just didn't believe (laughs) on a gut level. And part of it is the way that is constructed, the way you're talking, that everybody looks exactly the same. When a good amount of time has passed and something changes in your eyes, (laughs) even when it hasn't been a lot of tragic stuff, which is what you'd normally think of. I mean, yeah, I guess there's, again, maybe it's just that the passage of time in this sense is so removed from what it would be for us in our own experiences and thinking about, you know, seeing the people at your 30th high school reunion or whatever the the thing is, or after a war and what you see in the eyes of the veterans. This is kind of what I think of as the passage of time is being scarred by the passage of time. But the passage of time, I guess we get a little of that in, I want to say Phoebe. Uh, Patty. Hypatia. <laughs> yes, yes. Which was an interesting choice. It actually, this is just a side note, but like it made me look up, of course, it's been suggested before, can we do a Hypatia episode? I just recommend people look at the Wikipedia article about her. No, you really can't do, you could do it because she's just a very mythologized person that like the little of her original writing that we have is like commentary on mathematical texts. Like you would not want to spend any time reading this. That was a partially examined life we and not a pretty much pop we, whether we can do an episode about (laughs) Hypatia, by the way. (laughs) Exactly. So I'll have to take that up in another another format. I know that they pick that philosopher to highlight as, as somebody that at least we don't have any evidence that it was in favor of slavery or whatever. <laughs> that, that there's usually something that's fatally wrong from a, a historical perspective in almost any philosopher's line of thought, even if they're trying to be as moral as possible, which I guess was one of the conceits of why you would, even before you learn the truth about the, the flawed algorithm that you could believe that Chidi could be in the bad place, even though he's been trying continuously. I brought that up because I don't know. What did, what did you feel about that? Lisa Kudrow? Yes, that, what did you feel about that Lisa Kudrow 
we're going to introduce this person that's supposed to be so wise, but we'll, we don't actually have to back it up by having her say wise things because we're saying that her brain has been addled, that she can actually act ditzy like Phoebe because of that's where you see in her eyes that the time that has passed. That's the only character that there's something like that going on. That's kind of what I was getting at with like the last episode and, and how they ended up introducing that idea with Patty as it were, you know, she just becomes so like accustomed to, yep, things are great. And she didn't have anything to comment on anymore because there were no issues and there's no, like if there's no ending and everything's great, it's just really boring. And so I was really glad that they didn't just have them go to the good place and everybody was just happy for the rest of eternity. And that we saw that, yeah, eternity is longer than any of us can imagine. And let's see some people who've been through some and how how it doesn't even matter anymore. At least for me, what that helps me see is when I am going through struggles in life, and maybe this is just to trick myself into thinking it's great, but like to trick myself into thinking that, yeah, this is why life is worth it. Like these struggles are something to look forward to because at least there's something to fight for. You have nothing to fight for because everybody's everything's already there for you. But it almost feels like what depression truly is, right? It's like this void of nothingness. Because what is the point if things are always awesome? Right. And I think just adding a, here's a way that the characters can leave the good place would not be enough to sort of solve that. And now Hypatia is starting to be able to think again and things are magically fixed for these characters. Well, yeah, but like just knowing that they can gives them the will to want to try things because they know that they can end it. So if you know you can end it, then you're like, okay, well, let's do some stuff because eventually I'm going to want to end it. You don't think that's enough? I get it. And there's, you know, as I acknowledged initially, that there's a definite truth to the death being a gift thing, providing meaning. But I still felt it was kind of a a cheat in this artificial (laughs) world they'd created. But maybe I'm trying to take it a little too seriously that these are not, especially a character like that, that, you know, we don't have any background with. They're trying to retain some sort of psychological truth with the main characters and attempt very difficult transitions and make them plausible and likable with the non-human characters that are becoming more steadily human. So like that is enough. If they're going to play shorthand and pretend that these people that have been in heaven for millennia, you know, or Baramies, <laughs> however many Jeremy Baramies, the unit of time there, that they, I'm thinking that the deadening process is like Dr. Manhattan, right? That once you become this thing that to whom no mortal considerations really accrue, then I think, yeah, God is not going to be a loving God. God is going to be this weird thing that you could not possibly relate to because like, that's what it is to be somebody like that. And to, so to imagine that creatures like that are going to become recognizably more human merely by adding in death immediately. Like that's, I'll say charitably a symbolic shorthand. It's not a, a realistic character development. So Mark hated it <laughs> is what it comes down to. And when Michael sure listens to our podcast, I sure wished that anybody involved in this, you know, was getting secretly educated by the partially examined life because I, <laughs> D. Bradley Baker told me that there's a, a cadre of Hollywood people who talk about our pod, <laughs> that podcast and all listen to it together. And so I would be so honored. I don't think so. I think that Michael Shure, you know, goes to the primary sources and watches iTunes U things or whatever, not my stupid show, but it sure would have been nice. And 
because this was kind of treading in my domain a little bit, you know, of course I'm invading the domain of actual academics in treading that domain in the first place, which folks think is, we regularly get comments that that's very pretentious of you to, to, to be doing that without a doctorate. So that, you know, anytime anybody, this is just part of the anti-intellectualism of America, but putting that aside, but I wanted them to put in the effort to come up with a couple pages of what Chidi's actual giant thesis was. It was a funny gag that he had this like thousand page thing, but I wanted to show evidence that somebody in the writer's room thought through what would actually fill a thousand pages. <laughs> they tried a little bit, but I don't know. That was a place that I wish that maybe they had Todd May on in the first, the philosophical consultant on in the first season rather than in the second season. I think we really are meant to believe that it's, it's the ramblings of a madman. There wasn't a coherent thesis that you could boil it down to because of his clinical indecisiveness, that he he could never have landed on one thing. It would be more reasonable to think that it was truly Unabomber stuff. There are just so many actual philosophers who write these long books where they go through everybody else's view and kind of critique them. And then this was even, there's a guy that I took a class from, Leland Sklar, he wrote in the area of philosophy of space and time. Somebody had coined a thing for him, like, I thought he was going to finally tell me his view, but he was just sklarin' around. That became an actual term. Of, so I don't think it's uncommon at all. I could imagine easily this tour of the world's history of literature that would make up this thing that would not necessarily be a Unabomber-type mess. But uh, anyway. I just imagine he was like, arguing with himself so much all the time that he no longer had time for actual human interaction. That's a moral issue of its own when you're talking about morality but not actually practicing it. When you reflect on something too much, then you inevitably very quickly turn in a meta direction. So if you're obsessing, this is just a theory here, about morality in this way, right? there are certainly characters who say, are in a a particular religious tradition, and then they are just consumed with guilt, or am I doing this good enough? In other words, their morality system is set in place, and they can just be consumed in self-reflection of, am I living up to this standard? But if you're doing this philosophically, you're questioning the standard. And then very quickly, you get to the point of questioning the whole practice of having standards. (laughs) So you move from ethics to meta-ethics, she would have been all over that in year one. And yet, I don't think Michael Schur was at that point, or that's not how he sees ethics. And so that was, I don't know, maybe I'm, again, there wasn't enough detail packed in. Existentialism was mentioned. It was definitely an ongoing thing. But like, that's one of the turns that Nietzsche to existentialism takes is just questioning whether there is a right or wrong thing at all. What would there possibly be in the world that could make there be a right and wrong thing? And, you know, in this show, it was, there's a point system. <laughs> but then you question, well, is the point system just? And and how would you, you know, what would be the further standard that you would measure the point system by? You could either just try to answer that question and say, no, no, what is the real right thing? Or you could actually ask the question of, is there a right thing? Is that something that even makes conceptual sense, especially taking away the stakes, right, of life and death. If you think removing suffering is what makes an action good, then once we're in a post-life situation, it seems like it doesn't matter if you just eat all the shrimp, right? (laughs) Because there are no real consequences. You can ask Janet for more shrimp. Well, those wouldn't be the consequences, though, anymore, right? It would be a different consequence. Of being rude to somebody and somebody getting offended. Yeah, I'm just thinking, like, it wouldn't even be how do you feel after eating too much shrimp, because you're going to feel fine. 
But it's then a deeper into like, but what actually is going to make me at that point, like I, f- I, I feel like what you would then care about is just being a better person, right? If we think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if we have all those other things taken care of for us, then aren't we just stuck at the top, like figuring out how to gain true enlightenment? Self-actualization, yeah, I think is the top of, so what, whatever that means, become the you that you always knew you were, like, that is an interesting angle that could have been explored by the show of like, what does it mean for these characters to become, maybe they just didn't use these terms and I'm thinking through this, uh, this is probably something that was thrown around, but yeah, become the you that you are or should be, you know, reach your. I think we just broke Brian. Yeah. (laughs) I am with some of our listeners saying enough, but. Have you both seen the movie Defending Your Life? Yes, and it reminded me a lot of that. Right. I think this TV show owes that movie something, and it's also a comedy. And it's a, Mark, have you seen it? Is that Albert Brooks? Uh, yeah, I don't remember it very much at all. That's the one, and Meryl Streep. And it's a bit of a, they're in a bit of a pre-good place where they have died and their lives are being judged in terms of whether they conquered fear and lived good lives. Totally charming. I haven't seen it in a while. I remember really liking it. I want to go back and see it. I probably should have before watching this one. So I'm always a little nervous about recommending something I haven't seen in a decade, but I'm going to go ahead and put it out there that it was highly enjoyable. Well, listen, if we do a Meryl Streep retrospective, then we've got to include it. Yeah. Well, let's say goodbye to our regular listeners and the uh, Good Place listeners, those that follow us into the supporter-only content can hear us perhaps talk a little more about this so thanks thanks everyone thanks we have to end it now so that it means something (laughs) putting a bow on it oh man (laughs) get more pretty much pop at prettymuchpop.com get bonus content for every episode and you get to hear the episodes in advance of everyone else at patreon.com slash pretty much pop Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by OpenCulture.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.